0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, and today we'll be joined by Dr. Tiffany Florville. Welcome to our podcast today.
1: Thank you, thank you, thank you, Stephen, for the lovely invitation.
0: So uh, we'll be talking with uh, Tiffany Florbel about her uh, new book. It's called Mobilizing Black Germany, African American Women and the Making of a Transnational Movement. This is published by the University of Illinois Press in 2020. A little bit about her. Uh, She is an associate professor of 20th century European women's and gender history at the University of New Mexico. Dr. Florville specializes in the histories of post-1945 Europe, the African Black diaspora, social movements, feminism, Black internationalism, gender and sexuality, and emotions. Dr. Florville has published pieces in the Journal of Civil and Human Rights and the German Quarterly. And she's also co-edited a wonderful volume called Rethinking Black German Studies, Approaches, Interventions, and Histories, as well as published chapters in Gendering Post-1945 German History to Turn This Whole World Over, and Gendering Knowledge in Africa and the African Diaspora. We'll be talking about her book today, which is the first full-length study of the history of the black German movement of the 1980s to the 2000s. I should also add that Dr. Florville is a board member of the International Federation for Research in Women's History, and she's also on the Editorial Board for Central European History and the Executive Board for the Journal of Civil and Human Rights. Uh, If this is not enough, she's the editor of Imagining Black Europe, a new series uh, at Peter Long Press, and you can follow her on Twitter. Uh, We'll talk about some of her current research toward the end of our podcast today, so, I want to get right to the book uh, if I can. Um, I was so excited to see this book and to read this book, "Mobilizing Black Germany. Could you tell our listeners what uh, what your motivations were uh, and why you got interested in the topic?
1: Yeah, um I think it's like a sort of cheesy origin story. Um, I had a I had a German pin pal um, and we corresponded as I was a little child, and I visited her for like a summer. Um, I spent a month. Her family lives near Cologne. um, And I basically fell in love with the German culture and language. So I was like 16. And so like, wow, this is amazing. (laughs) And so as a result of that, I applied for a Congress Bundestag uh, scholarship to study um, in Germany for a year. And I was a finalist. And then um, I was able to sort of live in Germany for a year um, with a temporary host family near Frankfurt. And then my permanent host family um, in Hamburg. Um, and so it's only through my experiences in Hamburg and Germany during that year, a- additional experiences where I was sort of like racialized. I had, all, you know, uh, students at the N-word at my gymnasium. I um, mean, I had all of these sort of really weird racialized experiences in which I was like, wait a minute, I thought they'd purged racism after the <laughs> after the Second World War. why are these things happening? And then there was also some interesting dynamics in terms of Turkish Germans. So I was like, what's going on here? Um, And so I was like 18, 19. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to study this. Um, And so when I went back to the US, I decided to study um, more specifically engaged with sort of black German studies um, and figure out what that was. At the time, there was so like such minimal work done on it. Um, so it was sort of like excavating a lot of stuff that was done in the, um, in sort of German literature. So, um, original articles from like the nineties, um, early nineties about like, um, Anton William Amo, who was, uh, around sort of uh, around the enlightenment period and writing about sort of enslavement. And so I was able to sort of do that kind of research. And then I decided that it would be interesting to think about sort of, Black German, um, 20th century Black German mobilization, and what are the sort of the contours of that uh, mobilization? And so I basically decided okay, I'm going to do this in whatever, you know, whatever I can find, I'm going to write on it. And um, luckily I was able to find.
0: Yeah. Yeah, 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 and, and I really want to—I want to pursue this in a number of different directions. So um, this is a, a book which brings intersectional feminist theory and and talks a lot about individuals who are coming to Berlin and inspiring various movements. So I wonder if you have a narrative that you could tell from like the 1960s through the 1970s to the 1980s where there particular individuals out of the the U.S. civil rights struggle or were they in Germany proper? And how did you get interested in in individuals that you feature in the story?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question, Stephen. I think there's a sort of a longer legacy of civil rights activism um, and activists in Germany. So visiting Germany, of course, that's like Martin Luther King Jr.'s visit um, to both Frankfurt and Berlin. You also, I mean, he traveled with... um, um, Ralph Albernathy. You also have Angela Davis studying in, um, at Frankfurt, uh, University of Frankfurt, and then also going on to get her PhD at the University of Humboldt, the Humboldt University, excuse me. And so there's this sort of interesting dynamic. You have Du Bois there, that pre, you know, his sort of 19th century um, experiences in Berlin at um, Humboldt University, but then going back to East Germany and receiving an honorary degree, um, Robeson, Paul Robeson. So there's this sort of interesting cast of characters who, especially from the, especially a sort of African-Americans who've come to the U.S., aside from being a part of the Allied occupation, um, who were in um, in both, on both sides, so in West Germany and in East Germany. And I think it's that legacy that, like, um, Black German activists were, you know, were akin to and, you know, were felt a connection to. Um, and then there's a, certainly sort of, like, uh, African expats from South Africa from Ghana from Nigeria in West Berlin in the um, in the 80s um, South African uh, anti-apartheid activists there's actually a strong movement in West Berlin at the time against apartheid so you have all of this sort of interesting cast of diasporic characters who help to create this sense of um, of community in some respects but also um, give the give black Germans this sense of like, uh direction and um and and a sort of sense that they have the sort of they're connected to black politics more broadly and so it's sort of these earlier incarnations of like um african-american activists you also have fascia jensen who's a black german um, peace activist and also a singer and, uh, and so she becomes a, a, a prominent figure for black germans as well um, so you have all of these interesting um, figures who you know, basically predate um, Audre Lorde in many ways and also overlap with her time um, in Germany in the 1980s. And so I think it's that larger legacy um, of um, diasporic interactions and exchanges that really helped to ground the movement um, later in the 80s and 90s.
0: Right. And and there's such a richness, I think, in, in reconstructing this transnational effective community, as you describe it. I, I think that's a, a really apt description of their um, kinship, you know, almost like an intellectual kinship, but it's also their internationalism, and it crosses a whole lot of lines. So, uh, could you give our, our listeners an idea of how you um, went about arranging the book and and collecting your sources? So, this is a two part question um, about the, the networks that they they have, your sources, and so forth, um, and then the chapters. So, you know, what what are your, the chapters of the book, and then how did you decide to arrange that based on the sources you found?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, quite honestly, I didn't think I'd find anything <laughs> when I, you know, when I was doing dissertation research. It sounds sort of like sad now, but I was like, oh my gosh, I've written all these German archives, and they say they have nothing. What am I gonna do? <laughs> so, um, and so I basically just sort of like let me email people who I knew were a part of the movement. And so I knew uh, Doug Marshall's part um, was, you know, uh, not in the movement per se, but really connected with a lot of individuals who were in the movement. And then through her, I was con- she connected me to Equal Hugo Marshall and Freya Cheatham. And then I wrote to other people. So I wrote to like Katrina Ventoya. I wrote to the two that I think two of the editors of Afriketta, which is an Afro German uh, uh, Afro German magazine. Um, published by the um, Afro-German Women's Organization, ADEFRA. And so I wrote to all of these different people. Sometimes they responded, sometimes they didn't respond. But for the most part, a good chunk of them responded. They were like, who are you?
0: And I was like, <laughs> hi. S- hi. S- silly, silly American who's asking yeah, for everything, right? Exactly.
1: <laughs> silly American, who are you? Have you done your research? Um, and so I basically had coffee with like Doug Marshalls, Ika Hugo Marshall, and Rhea Cheatham. And they gave me a test. You know, they were like, do you know about this? Do you know about this? Do you know about this? And I was like, yes, I do. And I think they were just like shocked that I had done my research. <laughs> um, and we're like, okay, she's cool. Um, we like her. Um, and Rhea shared sources. Dagmar shared sources from Fab McKinnon. Um, you know, Ika talked about uh, her experiences with Audre Lorde. Um, other people opened up their homes and sources to me. Um, I also went to some sort of subcultural archives, sort of feminist archives, lesbian archives to sort of find out if there are sort of traces of the Black German movement in those, those archives. And there were. And so I was able to find some materials in those, um, in those areas as well. So I think the, the dissertation was basically structured because I was like, oh my gosh, I have sources. Now I have an abundance of sources. I don't know how I'm going to be able to write all about them. Um, and I, I'm terrified that now I'm, I'm suffering from so many sources. I don't know what to do. Um, so I basically sort of structured it. Uh, the dissertation was sort of structured like a, a, a mini intellectual history in ways in which I think about the post- Post-war context. In the dissertation, I referred to like the post-war context. Post-war context as like a a compounded post-coloniality in, in the German context. The sort of influx of so many diverse people from the diaspora, as well as so many diverse um, people who are part of the Allied occupation. And so, I, I sort of shifted from that a bit in the in the in the book. It becomes much more of an intellectual history, I think, um, in the book. And then I sort of really really sort of push this idea that Black Germans are um, not only activists in their own right, but certainly intellectuals and that the spaces that they created are, are are sort of sites for intellectualism and a sort of everyday intellectualism and at that. And so I think the book shifted and in, in which I sort of try to show each of the chapters shows different aspects of like belonging, um, and sort of kinship, but also I think under undergirding those, that those sort of themes are also the sort of longer um, thread of intellectualism.
0: Yeah. And, and I like your category, um, Tiffany of quotidian intellectuals, because you, you capture very nicely the everyday, um, realities. And, and that includes, of course, the racism that certainly exists in Berlin, um, could you give our, our listeners an idea of how Audre Lorde functioned within this community? I'm very interested in to ask you about um, her role among Afro-German women. So you, you mentioned um, Mayaim and, and Katerina Agontoya, who I think attended their classes. Was, was that correct? Yeah, so, yeah. What, what, what was that like? And could you sort of reconstruct that? And, and you know, I mean, who Audre Lorde was, because she's such a giant in your story. Yeah.
1: yeah. So Audre Lorde was... a Phenomenal um, poet, uh, activist, internationalist. She taught at the um, in New York City. She had published multiple volumes of poetry prior to arriving in um, in Germany in 1984. So she comes to teach basically for this like summer semester in Berlin. She's invited um, by Dagmar Schultz invited her to come and teach. Um, there's a, like a f- quite a few years of like negotiation in terms of like. Um, the FU, the Free University, and Lord, so negotiating pay, negotiating what would work best for her. Um, and so finally, she comes in 1984, and she teaches three literature um courses at the Free University, of which some Black German women were in attendance. And so I listened some of, to some of the audio of those classes um at the um at the Audre Lord archive and at the Free University. And so it's really compelling to see how she engages with. Students um, in, this, in, in the in in the classroom. I have tried hopelessly to look for like class rosters while I was there, and I couldn't find any. Um, I'm sure maybe in the future I'm gonna keep looking to see just who, what were the sort of what was the composition of students. I just know you know there there were a few black German students in the um, class, including sort of Katrina and um, and Mai. And so she really has a, a command of her classroom, and she's also sort of pushing for students to recognize the the urgency of sort of um, race in in poetry and sort of in the German context. and so she really tries to give the, you know, Black students who were in her class, as well as other students of color who were in her class, an opportunity to speak. And she really sort of privileges their, she gives them sort of a voice, not a voice, but she gives them a floor, excuse me, a forum to really sort of speak in those classes. So that was really interesting to to listen to in terms of how she engaged with students and how she's really prompted and facilitated. Um, really, at, at moments, um, a, a tense classroom setting in terms when it comes to issues of race, you know, in a, in a German classroom. But also, like, she doesn't back down from those uncomfortable moments and sort of uses that as a way to try to get her students to really re- recognize the urgency and the importance of these discussions. And so she is certainly a, an important figure for the movement. Um, and, you know, Katrina, Mai, she really encourages them to write Fab Buchanan, which they eventually do write um she is you know she becomes this sort of godmother or you know godmother mother figure for for several women in the movement she doesn't have that she doesn't maintain that 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 status for everyone in the movement But i think a significant amount of feminists um and and queer feminists at that in the movement really see her as this sort of godmother of the movement someone who really helped them you know yeah. And mobilize.
0: And and she was also, I, I mean, she's such an important figure, but she was also sort sort of going through her own kind of moment of self-discovery. I, I don't know if that's quite accurate, but could could you describe her own sort of time and how long was she there and what was she doing and, and what does she end up writing about herself and others?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question too, Stephen. You're like killing it. Um, <laughs> I can't. Yeah.
0: I can't help it. I'm. A, I'm. A, you know. I'm fanning your book. I, I really, oh I really, um, really yeah, like this. So we've got a lot to talk about. Don't. Don't. Don't stop. Go.
1: I I <laughs> yeah. I. You can't see me blush, but I'm blushing. So. <laughs> um, yeah. I think she. I think what's so fascinating about Lord is that she comes. She has like a, a sort of a, a resurgence in Berlin. Um, that it basically restores her life in many ways. She obtains um, um, alternative cancer treatments. It's so in eighty four she learns that she her cancer is returned, um, and so she eventually so she had breast cancer earlier, and now um, the cancer is returned and it's in her liver. And so she's uh, she learns about this, and it's through actually through Dagmar Schultz that she decides to pursue alternative cancer treatments in Berlin, and so she. She does the sort of alternative homeopathic um, um, practices for her, her cancer. And then she meets all these Black women and Black men that she had wanted to meet. So she, she, she did go to Berlin knowing that there was a community there, how large, she wasn't sure, but she knew she wanted to meet them. And so she goes there and she writes, she has, you know, she goes to operas she could mingles with, you know, she goes to cultural center. She has really, um, as, uh, I think her partner, Gloria Joseph mentioned, she just, you know, Berlin sustained her in ways, um, and being in Europe more broadly also helped sustain her. And I think her partner, you know, Joseph adds that, you know, Berlin basically helped her live. Like it is, it is Berlin that helped her, you know, live for the additional, you know, I think, you know, I think it's an additional 12 years that she, um that she lived before she passed. And so it basically gave her sort of a new leash on life in a variety of ways. Um, and I think that was, uh, I think for her, that was just so important. Um, and she, her, her poetry about, you know, her poetry about Berlin, her recognition of the sort of problems that Helmut Kohl needed to address, writing Helmut Kohl, Chancellor Helmut Kohl, um, so I think she really used the city to her advantage, but I think she also used her experiences in um, Europe more broadly to her advantage. So she connects with women in the Netherlands. She connects with women in Switzerland. She connects with women in the UK. She's not, a, a, she's unabashed about forging these connections with a variety of women across the diaspora and not only sort of um, women of African descent. She's really keen to sort of foster connections with women with white women, um, women of color, the gamut of women who are engaged in anti-racist work.
0: Mm-hmm. And could you introduce some of the different chapters among the organizations that then form in the 1980s? We're, we're talking about the long course of the coal era, right? So what are, what are some of those organizations? You mentioned Afriketa. Um, there are several others, but which ones do you cover in your book?
1: Yeah, in my book, I cover sort of the two prominent Black German organizations. So the first one is ISD or Initiative of Schwarze Deutsche, um, and then the second one is Addefra or Afro German Women. And both of those organizations um, form in the mid '80s, uh, and they have chapters or um, pop up across uh, across West Germany, and then of course later across uh, East Germany. Although there is an East Berlin chapter that is able to forge connections with the Berlin. So the West Berlin chapter of ISD. And so there's some initial, some interesting work that emerges um, prior to the fall of the wall. Um, I'm also trying to get more information about those organizations. But, you know, certainly with COVID, who knows when I'll be able to go back, which it's lay weep. Um, but it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's sad. But I think what's been so interesting to me is that discovering all of the other organizations that black Germans were involved in. So like, while I talk about those two prominent black German organizations as really helping to, you know, spark and catalyze the black German movement of the, the modern black German movement in the 1980s, they were involved in all of these other organizations. So they were involved in, in, uh, immigrant uh, migrant organizations they were involved in other diasporic organizations and all of those organizations feature in um, interesting ways they're sort of anti-racist organizations from this um, from the state and so i talk a little bit about those organizations in chapters um, two and also again in chapters five to sort of talk about some of those sort of berlin connections that were fostered and those sort of uh, those networks that black germans are also able to build
0: upon would would you say that Berlin was the center? Because I mean, you do have other cities, and you mentioned Agontoya's um, work and correspondence with, with people in Frankfurt or or Cologne or even Kassel, Bielfeld, and so forth. So, I mean, how does that work? I guess in in a larger um, system for these quotidian intellectuals, how how do they begin to connect? Is it just a subscription system that they have for for journals and magazines, or is it letters or I I was very curious about that, reading through your chapters and reading through your sources, how they put things together through the through the mid to late 80s. Yeah,
1: that's a that's yeah, that's a great question, too. I think it's a combination. So, like, of course, there were subscriptions to Afriketa. And so that's why I was like, ooh, I have the I have the contact information from the editors of Afriketa surely they'll want to talk to me, but like, no, <laughs> they didn't want to talk to me. So um, but then I also found all of the subscription information about Afro look. So there's, you know, they had subscribers from so Ricky Reiser, one of the editors of Afro look, really was so kind and was like, Hey, look at all this stuff I have, would it be of interest to you? And I was like, Oh, my God, subscriptions from, you know, from scholars in the U.S. So like Leslie Idelson is subscribing a little to Afro Look. Um, and Leroy Hopkins is subscribing to Afro Look. And all of these, you know, you know, prominent intellectuals, prominent scholars in the U.S. And then also certainly sort of scholars um, and sort of uh, Black Germans in, in Germany. So for, for Afro Look, I have some of that information. For Afriketa, I don't have as much of that information. And so that's been that's something I need to continue to keep digging and you know, I don't want to nag, but I also sort of want to know more information about that. Um, and then for the, uh, for the sort of other, um, organizations like uh, for sort of ISD in particular, they're basically sort of meeting informally at, uh, at people's houses, at cafes, they're advertising in newspapers, they're advertising on the radio, when they have when um, um, when black Germans organized their first uh, first get- get-together, national get-together in 1985, they basically uh, advertise at a variety of venues um, locally in the sort of near the V near Frankfurt. So they they organize and have a meeting in V near Frankfurt, and they do it through newspapers, radio, um, word of mouth, and all of these. You know, black Germans show up across across Germany, and they go and they rejoice in being in the company of other black people who are speaking German and not speaking English. So it's such a sort of effective moment for many of them, where they're like, "Oh my gosh!" Like someone speaking my mother tongue and it's not an African-American, you know, it's like, it's someone who, you know, who's black German. Um, And so that's how it works. It works by like sort of these, these um, informal connections, meeting at kitchen tables and then going from the kitchen table to like a cafe with a more individuals and then, you know, advertising in a variety of sort of local venues. And then in addition to that, I think what's interesting is that Fabican and sort of the, the publication of Fabrican and also allows them to, to, to gather more, more, more individuals. they sort of, it becomes an entry point for a lot of um, black German, especially for a lot of black German women. And so they sort of, you know, they want to go to Fabrican and events. They sort of want to go to readings. They want to connect with other, the they want to connect with one of the, uh, one of the editors or other, the contributors one of the other contributors in, um, in Bob McKenon. So in many ways, given that it was a, 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 this is an age that predates the predates, you know, um, Twitter and predates Facebook. It's amazing. The grassroots um, capabilities that they had in terms of forging these connections in which they're literally using newspapers. They're using word of mouth, they're using the radio there's also a variety of documentaries on, um, um, on television and, the, um, and, R&D and a variety of other sort of um, uh, uh, television stations in Germany in which they're um, showing documentaries of black, jer- black German children. They sometimes came and black Germans in the movement um, gathered around to sort of watch those documentaries. There are interviews as a result of those um, documentaries and prominent newspapers. And so you have a variety of ways in which they were able to sort of mobilize and connect Um, that I think today is, would be, you know, is, is amazing. But today I would be like, you know, I, I think, I I think Facebook helps, you know, helps that in so many ways that this, there was no Facebook. And then they had newsletters that they would email to um, their members, Um, Afriketa. um, So excuse me, Afra had newsletters that I would email to, not email, but mail to its so, um, members, ISD also had some newsletters that they would mail to their members to keep them abreast of what was going on, new events, old events, etc.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you a question about the the mutuality, to use a really sort of formal academic term here. Both the, both their strategies and and I, send, I would say a sense of effective community. So geographically. How, how far are they stretching out in the African diaspora? I mean, you mentioned, you know, a lot of centers like Sister Outsider, I think, if I remember one, or, or Sisters, and you know the, even the World Council of Churches, I think, was one. And so, I mean, how, how do they do that? Where, where does it go? And, and politically, you know, uh, this is a harder question, but with whom are they aligned? I, is, this, is this Green Party? Is this radicalism? Is it, is it apolitical? How how would you conceptualize that?
1: Oh yeah, wow, Stephen, I like that. That's a really good question. Um, yeah, I think they they sort of their their reach is f- much um, further than I initially realized. So when I initially ta- um, took on the topic, I was like, oh, they're connected to like yeah, Lord, and that's about it. But um, through the research, I realized that they were not only connected to Lord, but they're connected to feminists. Certainly, yes, is the sister sister outsider organization in um, the Netherlands run by Gloria Vecker and um, and several other um, Dutch feminists black, uh, black Dutch feminists they're connected to um, feminist organizations in the UK they're connected to feminist organizations and feminists in um, New Zealand in in South Africa in Latin America and the Caribbean so they're, they're their reach is much much broader than I think um, other scholars have given them credit for too, that they really consciously are uh, are aligning themselves with a variety of uh, other diasporic communities and other sort of communities that, um, that use the designation of Black to mean not only sort of a political designation, but also a cultural designation. So you have the juxtaposition of people who are in the African diaspora, but also people who are not necessarily in the African diaspora, but also facing similar issues of like um, uh, uh, colonialism and imperialism. And they sort of identify as sort of black activists as well. And so they really do. They really do sort of span the globe in how they see themselves and who they're engaging with. It's not a Marxist movement though by any stretch of the imagination Yeah, you're they're
0: anticipating not, my questions Yeah, mean, how radical are they is really my question if yeah, you can I mean, answer I think, that yeah I
1: think you're I think they're radical but they're not I mean so they're not like they're not trying to create a Black Panther movement. Of, certainly there was already one in the German case um, in the sort of you know 70s there's sort of Black Panther party um, uh, groups across a variety of like uh, German German cities. They're not trying to be the Black Panthers um, in the 80s or the 90s. They're not sort of calling for like a Marxist, uh, Marxist revolution um, in which they sort of topple capitalism um, in the process. But I do think they're radical in the sense that like the f- sense that they're forcing a discussion and changing discourses surrounding race is huge in the German context. This is a, you know, this is a country that still is, you know, re- discussions of race are taboo more taboo on both sides of the wall in East Germany and in West Germany, and so these the sort of Black German movement is radical in the sense that it says, "Hey, race matters. Look, we're the product of of those those encounters, and that this sort of discussion matters, and that we can't we can no longer erase it. We need to really engage with not only our race um, our racist past, but we also need to engage with our colonial past. And so I think it's radical in that perspective." And I think it's not. I mean, it's a, It's certainly a type of radicalism that we wouldn't necessarily so. Asso- we we wouldn't necessarily associate with radicalism because we're like, oh, it's not. You know, they're not like you know holding arms and ready to like you know topple down the the, the federal public of Germany, but. You know, but they are trying to topple down these sort of entrenched beliefs about, um, about race and the legacy of race in the German context. And I think from that perspective, I do see them as radical, but they're not, they're not like what I would say are traditional Black radicalism in terms of thinking about notions of Black nationalism and the like in the sort of other diaspora contexts, like the Black Panther Party in Britain or the Black Panthers in the U.S.,
0: Mm-hmm. And I get the impression, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that some of the movements and some of the places and chapters are stronger than others, at least in terms of, of membership and, and maybe even events. So I, I guess my next question for you would be, what changes after 1991? Um, do some of the movements, and, and you mentioned the Institute, perhaps you could talk about that, but some of them seem to get stronger and others fizzle out? And maybe if you have a, a story or two about that... What, yeah. what exactly happens through the next decade?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that I think in many ways it's like a turning point for the movement too. Because on the one hand, they're able to uh, foster more connections with groups in Leipzig or Dresden, and they're able to really create more sort of black German, um, ISD chapters in particular. And it's after those sort of 1991 that they as- also moved to having, um, the national meetings, Bundestreffen's in, um, the, in the East. So there are a variety of, um, that take place in, um, in, in the East. In the same token, there's also this sort of, you know, onslaught of like, uh, racial violence, uh, violence there's sort of this push for uh, fortress Europe, um, you know moving into becoming a part of the eu
0: and, and also- still the legislation that, that that exists right i mean the us the us sanguinous that still exists until 1999 right exactly. yeah sorry to interrupt exactly. you, go ahead so in
1: you still no you're absolutely right um Stephen. like you still have the german citizenship law which basically which is you know termed term the grandfather <laughs> grandfather clause in which if you're you know if your grandfather was german you had you know you were german so this basically, you know, puts uh, really placed black Germans in this precarious liminal state of citizenship in which they're, you know, they're German, but they're still not perceived German because of that sort of tide, that sort of paternity and that descent and that blood. So really, really uh, encapsulated in that citizenship law that doesn't change, like you mentioned, until 99, 2000. And so you have all of these factors coming into play. And I think it's the sort of persistent racial violence for Black Germans that they really try to agitate against that and try to create more awareness about those, those, those you know, cases of racial violence that tend to, to end murderously. They try to really promote this notion that Black Germans and Black people have been in Germany for longer than the 20th century and that we need to recognize that. So it's a variety of things that really help them so I think the first stage of the movement is like, hey, we're Black German, look at us, recognize us. I think the post-wall stage of the movement is very much like, how do we deal with these prescient things that are are, are detrimental to this, to our community, but to other communities? And I think it's now where they also sort of push for more more discussion about migrant rights, women's migrant rights in particular, they're fostering a lot of connections, at least at is with a lot of migrant organizations. There's a lot of sort of push to try to help migrant women um, integrate, find um, jobs in the German context. So I think the second stage is sort of like, hey, the first stage where you're black German, we're here. The second stage is like, we need to do more and we're going to do more through these through these
0: avenues. Right. Right. And you you mentioned in 1993, the importance of the the volume black women of the world. Um and this seems like a seminal text, I guess, for the for the decade. I, I wonder, you know, I, and I hope this isn't a harsher question, but where are the men? <laughs> I mean, where where are the men? I mean, where are the non Black men, and and where are the Black men? I, I guess, or you know, sort of African American diasporic men? Are they just not supporting these initiatives, or? I mean, what what is the question there? I guess. Um, yeah, that's a good could, question. Could could you talk about that text, maybe, because it seems yeah. so defining for for the moment and, yeah. and the larger I mean, question the, of gender and race?
1: Yeah, I mean, the text emerges after this. Um, in 1991, I basically talk about this co- this institute that that. Uh, has a conference in Berlin, Bielenfeld and Frankfurt in 1991. So right after the wall falls and it's the cross-cultural black women's studies, summer Institute. So don't say that five times. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I can barely make it out once. So, So, and when, um, and so there's a variety of these international conferences that took place um, in the UK, in New Zealand, in Zimbabwe, in New York. And then the sort of fifth one takes place in, in, in Germany. And so they have a number and the, the, the conference team really deals with sort of black people and the you know, economic community. And they have a number of panelists and a number of sort of prominent people come and visit. You have like Beryl Garroy, You know, Paul Garroy's mom is there.
0: Yeah, she's yeah, there. yeah, She's
1: just like, "Hey, how are you?" Oh, I'm sorry, that she's not like, "Hey, how are you?" But she's, <laughs> she's,
0: she's there. there, and you know,
1: she's, <laughs> she's an she's an intellectual and was a writer in her own right. So she um, she was there. Um, Angela Davis was supposed to there post supposed to be there, but didn't make it. You also had like Philomena Assad there and all of these other sort of prominent. Um, black feminists, black European feminists, Philomena Assad is an Afro-Dutch feminist. And so you have all of these women gathering together um, to sort of talk about issues of race or a variety of panels, a variety of uh, uh, workshops. And it was a really pretty dynamic conference uh, took place over three weeks. Uh, and uh, as a result, they decided to publish some of the proceedings from the conference and the volume, you know, black women of the world. And that's the text that you know Orlando Felag publishes in 1993. Uh, Aime has a piece. They dedicate it to Lord since she had since um, she would passed. Uh, she passed in November of 1992, so the volume comes out in 93. They dedicate the volume to her. Marion Kraft uh, was one of the sort of co-editors of the volume, who was also prominent in the movement, who also helped with organizing the the institute in in Berlin in Frankfurt and Bielefeld, and so the volume i'm not really not much is written on that volume i mean i write a little bit about it um there's also another scholar um in in geneva who writes about it too but as a as a whole there's not much written about it in terms of thinking of thinking about it as like this really sl- interesting text about intersectionality so not only does it have black um, black german women black european women more broadly in it but it has uh, has immigrant women talking about their experiences in europe it really tries to run the gamut of what constitutes Black feminism and um, uh, and the sort of significance of community in forging those uh, those connections. So I think for some s- later down the road, I think I'll write a little bit more about it in comparison to some other feminist texts, um, just to sort of think about it in relationship to, in relationship to those other texts. But I think it is a, a quite a significant book. Um, I think it's also important that it's once again published from Arlanda Filag, which was certainly at the forefront of, pu- um, of pushing intersectional um, uh, on works and publishing intersectional works. It also published a lot of Lord's translated works, mm-hmm. Bell yes. works, Bell Hooks later works Hooks as well. Yes, exactly. yes. Exactly. So yeah. I yeah, think, yeah. You know, I think it's a, it was primed to do this kind of work in many ways. Um, and it does still do this work. I mean, Alanda falaga is still in existence. It's still publishing interesting work about sort of um, migrant women, the migrant experience in the, um, in Germany. Um. Really, a lot of interesting contemporary publications from Orlando also in, include and really engage with sort of um Muslim women, their experiences in Germany and the like. So I think it still has that. It still has that particularly powerful um uh, cultural and political cachet. But yeah, I think that was that, you know, Black Women of the World was a part of that. And it's a part of a number of books that um, Orlando Fulag published in the ni- early 90s about intersectionality and dealing with some of these issues of like racial violence and xenophobia, which, you know, in terms of the German context, which was like, oh, they're just unlike foreigners. It's, it's xenophobia. Yeah, 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 <laughs> but, yeah. you know, I think these books were trying to say it's not only xenophobia. There's a longer lineage of um, racism that take, that links back to the colonial period not only in Africa, but in the Pacific.
0: And, and how would you say, do you take your story into the 21st century? So I I, I mean, it's always hard to end a book, but I, I mean, your book is a story, it's an inspiring story. It's a story of solidarity and, and well into the BLM movement in Germany and beyond. So um, how did you decide, I guess, to write the end of the book? I'm really curious about this in, in your last chapter and in your in your epilogue, what is the story there? And, and what would you what would you like to tell more about?
1: Yeah, it's, I love these questions, Stephen. Thank you. Um, I, I, yeah, I'm enjoying talking with you quite, quite a lot. So um, yeah, I think initially that my the last chapter in the book was like a section <laughs> in my dissertation. It was like barely four pages. <laughs>
0: so um,
1: I was like, oh. Um, and so I be, there was a conference about like, I think a diaspora conference, basically my first year of the tenure track here at New Mexico. And I was like, I'm just going to apply and go to this conference. And then I developed the chapter as a result of um, presenting at the conference. And it became like uh, a chapter on its own, a standalone chapter on its own. And I did some follow-up research. And so I thought it's interesting because we don't necessarily think about like, you know, black freedom struggles, or even sort of notions of black liberation, well into the 80s and 90s. It's sort of the cutoff point is basically the 60s, a little bit of the 70s get in there. But, you know, it's sort of like, hey, we're over, we're done. Let's, let's, let's keep it moving. And so I thought for me, it it would be an interesting thing to really tackle the sort of dynamics of a pulse wall of Germany and how black German, um, black German women in particular are responding to it. Um, Black men are there. Like I know in your your initial question, you're like, ooh, who are the black men? The black men are there. African-American men are also there. Um, You have Donald Griffith, who's there with his um, organization. He does like a black cinema, an international black cinema um, event. There are other black German men like Tahir Della and John Kantara and Ni Adi, who are connecting with other um, diasporic men in the U.K., um, so Niati goes to a lot of events in the UK, third world book fairs, he connects with uh, activists uh, in um, in France and elsewhere. So these men are still there. Um, and they're still sort of active. And I think that's part of, you know, my interest in wanting to do some more um, digging and doing more research on sort of teasing out some of the, the the larger networks that black German men were also a part of at the same time.
0: Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Sorry. Sorry.
1: I'm sorry. Um, And then I think in terms of thinking about Black Lives Matter, um, I think the entire sort of Black German movement was about, you know, prefacing this idea that like we've mattered, we've always mattered, we've always been here. And so it seemed like a nice end point to sort of show how the movement is still sustaining, how we still have new issues at play and which some of those old issues didn't get resolved, And that Black Lives Matter is a, a modern representation of, you know, the the thirty plus years that black Germans have been agitating in the German context. So it and, seemed and, like a nice ending.
0: Yeah, and, and what sort of context do you see for queer black women and and for and for queer people in general? So um, going forward from from twenty thirteen, the founding of BLM and um, you mentioned I think rightly the the founding by three black women and two who are queer. So how how does that go forward from twenty thirteen and twenty fourteen, and especially in a German context? What what sort of things do you see, either based out of Berlin in in the sort of old multiculturalism, or or maybe in new avenues and new channels?
1: Yeah, I think sort of new avenues and new channels. I think Black Lives Matter in the German context is multiracial, um, and you see a similar dynamic across the gamut, quite quite honestly. And that is really involves queer women, um, and queer women are there. They're 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 still prominent. You still have activists in Adefra who are involved in Black Lives Matter. You have um, Maisha Uma writing about the significance of Black Lives Matter. Um, you have um, you have also Diana Arce is still quite prominent in um, Black Lives Matter. She's holding meetings in in, in Berlin currently. She's a, she's an artist. Her, her artistic and political, um, her practice are very queer in nature. Like she's, you yeah. know, she's, yeah, I think like. It's I think, really
0: interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I
1: feel like queerness is sort of certainly like an identity, but it's also like a practice in terms of like really eschewing um, heteronormativity, eschewing traditional um, racial and gender norms. And I think that, that the BLM movement in Germany does that. And you see how it did it across. I'm going to say across the continent in terms of the toppling of statues, the sort of, you know, push back against this notion that like, we're done. We, our colonial past is done. We're not, it it has nothing to do with us now. And I think the movement really signifies that like this engagement with colonialism is not over. Like we still need to really, we we need to sort of disentangle this belief that like, Oh, it's over. We love it. I mean, I feel like Brexit is a, a primary example of that, but, um, but I think it's in, that these movements really symbolize, you know, the possibilities for 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 not only sort of rights and sort of um, recognition, but they these movements really open up the possibilities of what like solidarity can really
0: mean. Mm-hmm. And do do you see a generational? shift or a generational yeah. exchange and, and in fact w- what would it be i mean yeah. you know because the, the larger context we haven't even mentioned alternative for deutschland but and, well, and all yeah, the yeah. police brutality and violence yeah. but you know, I'm, I'm very interested in how the cultural activism translates into political activism and ultimately into legislation right yeah. now, now, especially after hopefully the Trump years. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, how do you see a generational shift? I, I think having done a lot of grassroots research, um, yeah. what would, what would that be?
1: Well, I think the sort of generational shift is so significant. I mean, they, I mean, we, I mean, you know, this as well as I do that Berlin, uh, Aside from uh, Berlin, Munich, Hamburg, Frankfurt, these are cities that are so, so vibrant and diverse. Like you can see, you know, other black Germans, you can see, you know, you can hear, you know, 20 different languages in Berlin, (laughs) which is walking down the street. And I think that diversity is important and that diversity has led to a lot of um, coalition building in interesting ways, like the sort of anti-racist legislation that is now in Berlin um and i think that's been a key step that was a key step for years in the black German movement trying to get anti-racist legislation i mean it's uh, certainly now um in Berlin but then there's also this discussion about the constitution the German constitution and purging race from the German constitution and how and activists are like, no, like this isn't, that is not how you deal with race. Like you can't, purging it does not um, disavow its existence. It, it, it actually doesn't do anything. And so we need to sort of um, maintain it in the, in the constitution and do more to recognize the, the diversity of, our, of, of the population. And I think Afro census is doing that as well. So black Germans have been pushing for an Afro census so that they can have, um, Quantifiable data to find out how many black Germans, how many other you know people of color are out there. And I think that's important, especially after the after the context of the Third Reich, in which racial census were, you know, were were looked down upon. You don't we don't have any of those figures for the in the German context, we can sort of have estimations, which I think I have in the book, which is like, ah, uh, anywhere yeah. between yeah. this and this. It's, <laughs>
0: it's really hard to say. I, I'm not seeing a lot of numbers, but it's really hard to say, isn't it? Exactly. I mean, it, it's yeah. totally
1: hard to say. And so the, the, the numbers that get cited a lot are like, you know, between five hundred thousand and eight hundred thousand. And I quite I think those numbers are not I don't think those numbers are terribly accurate. I think there's the numbers are more. Um I think those uh, but those are the those are the estimates estimations that we've had. And those are the estimations we've had for like 10 years now. And so this is why I think the Afro census is so important, because we need to sort of have that quantifiable data to sort of talk about issues of um, racial um, discrimination in housing, and in, 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 in employment and the like. And so this is where Germany is, uh, you know, behind in terms of other countries, like you have Britain who pushed some of this push for some of this um, legislation in the sort of fifties and sixties and there's sort of anti-discrimination and civil rights um, lawyers who are helping to defies, um, to, 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 to basically produce some of this legislation that would help and acknowledge um, racism and employment and housing and, education but like in the german context that's not the case and i so i think this new generation is really helping to push that but that old generation who was involved in the movement in the sort of earlier instances of the movement they're still around like um tahir Della is still active in pushing for you know racial profiling legislation um you have Ria Cheatham and Katarina pentoya still out there pushing for feminist activism and you know agitating on a variety of levels. So they're still there and they're working alongside um, this younger generation, and and I think that's that's key that this younger generation has that older generation to to look up look up to and sort of work and in, in co- and consolidate uh, and work in cooperation with them. Um, whereas I think this sort of uh, Generation of the '80s and '90s, they basically just had each other, <laughs> and they had the sort of s- figures that they looked up to. Um, and now, now they are the figures that you know this younger generation looks up to.
0: Right, right. Well, uh, since we're kind of running low on time, I, I can't let you um, get away without perhaps suggesting maybe a couple of books on the topic for our listeners here at new books network. And of course, talking about your many initiatives and projects and things that you're working on. I I follow you actively on Twitter uh, almost every day, in fact, so uh, I'm paying paying attention and I hope our listeners might as well. So a couple of books perhaps, and and maybe your own research.
1: Yeah. I think some great books that um, your listeners could check out is one of the books is Tina Camps um, other, um, uh, is uh, other Germans, and she wrote the book about uh, the Black German generation after uh, World War I. So that generation is oftentimes the offspring of white German women and French colonial soldiers. And so that book talks about how the, the French occupation of the Rhineland and the rural areas was deemed a Black shame. Um, and, you know, uh, labeled as such. And it was an international campaign in which people were outraged that French would send f- their French colonial soldiers, black French colonial soldiers to, to desecrate the German race in so many ways. And so that book's an interesting book. You also have um, Michelle Moyd talks about Askari soldiers in World War I. I think that's fascinating in terms of to see their, you know, to see their loyalty to the German Empire in ways that you don't necessarily think about. And so that book is fascinating. Um, and I think that book only came out in 2014. So, I mean, you have like Tina Camp, Michelle Moyd's work. Um, you also have like the sort of new, uh, you have Priscilla Lane's work who talks about like Black, Black appropriation in German culture. Her book came out in 2018. Um, and so we have different sort of um, different uh, books that are dealing with uh, aspects of, of race, racialization, and difference. And then I'm also, I have to say, I'm also looking forward to, and I hope you have her on, Kira Thurman's book on Black musicians in the German context. Um, her book is coming out in the fall of this year. So I think there's so many rich avenues for this research, but those are the three books I would recommend. So Tina Camp's uh, first book, uh, michelle Moyne's book as well as uh, uh, priscilla lane's book on
0: mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Black and, and kira excellent and, and and your and your current research for for our listeners what are you working on
1: yeah i'm working on a variety of things like you said Stephen. so i'm working on a special issue for um the central european history journal on black europe that has really cool contributors focusing on yugoslavia focusing on um uh, the ottoman empire focusing on uh on uh, Ralph Abernathy's experiences in in, in in Germany, I also am working on an edited volume on Black Europe, and starting a new project on a book on Black Europe in the twentieth century. Sort of tracing the tracing Black Lives Matter backwards, and sort of looking at different uh, practices and strategies for pushing the significance of Black Lives legisl- and legislatively, uh, as well as culturally.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to thank you, um, Tiffany Florville, for joining me in this very lively conversation. I I think our listeners will gather so much from this um, here at New Books Network. Um, Congratulations to you on this wonderful book. Really, I, I enjoyed reading it so much.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for reading it. Thank you so much for the invitation. It was a pleasure to talk with you. I had so much fun.
0: We've been speaking here with Dr. Tiffany Florville. She is the author of a new book. It is called Mobilizing Black Germany, Afro-German Women and the Making of a Transnational Movement, published in 2020 by the University of Illinois Press. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel on the New Books Network. Thanks for joining us. Till next time.